Hello, good morning. Welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. So we have been doing this podcast for about six months now, which is wild to me because when I started this, I didn't really know how long it would go, but everybody's been so excited and have had really no problem finding storytellers. So we're just going to keep on rolling. So uh, I have a lot of episodes recorded that are coming out soon, you know, down the pipe. And I loved recording them, and I hope that y'all enjoy listening to them. And thank you to everybody who has been listening, because I appreciate you. You are helping me spread the word about all the amazing things going on in STEM, and I appreciate you. So today's storyteller is Kellen, um, who I know from the Baton Rouge pod of 500 Women Scientists. She is one of those people who is just full of ideas and life and wise words and wisdom and just she's just amazing in general so I wanted to have her on the podcast because I knew that she'd have some great perspective to share and her theme today is all about restoration it's restoration of herself restoration of ecosystems or the environment um and just really every interpretation of restoration that we could use. And we talk a lot about that. Um, we're both wetland scientists, so we talk about that. And yeah, Kellen's just full of ideas and has amazing things to say. So I hope you enjoy uh, this conversation I had with Kellen. Halito, Sahachofayat, Kellen Lacour Connet. Bonjour tout le monde. Mopele, Kellen Lacour Connet. I am a restoration ecologist living in Itihoma or Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is the traditional meeting point between several indigenous nations like the Homa and the Bayagula. My family is from a little island in Kasachi National Forest um, called Cane River or Isle Brevel. Um, and my STEM story really is about my reconnection to my family heritage and about reclaiming science as a spiritual practice and accepting it as a gift of healing. So I wanted to start with my family and work my way to where I am now. (laughs) My family roots are in healing. You know, our matriarch, Coin Coin, she was an Eve Medsan and planter and trapper. And she created this community and provided for this community in Kathachi Forest um, and was known as a healer and a provider and you know provided wealth for this community of, of freed people of color, of African and indigenous and, and other ancestries. Uh, we also have traditional Chinese medicinal healers and our ancestry on my father's side. Uh, Yiler Hongo was a Chinese immigrant by way of Cuba and he brought his wisdom and his practices to the Kisachi area. And then our native ancestors from different nations from what's now Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, they all influenced our traditional foodways and our lifestyles that contribute to our culture and, and helped us thrive with our environment. Um, and I say all of that to describe that, you know, I grew up surrounded by a family and my culture and, and knowing my heritage and everything. 
But at 18, I really, really wanted to experience something different. <laughs> I just wanted to go far away. I, you know, wanted to go somewhere my family had never been and, you know, just get out, you know, whatever. Um, and I was also sold this story that we get in school that if you go to a quote good school and get a quote good job then you can make more money than your parents and provide for them and uplift your community and all that and I I really thought that was you know my only option that was the only thing I could do was just to try and provide so I did that and I ended up going to school in Massachusetts which was a really trying five years for me you know I experienced a lot of uh, discrimination and abuse and some different traumas and hard times and things. But it was good that I went away because it helped me rediscover and understand why I needed to come back home to the Gulf Coast, uh, where my family's from, and what I needed to do when I came back. You know, you have to go away to understand what you left, all of that. And so I worked my way back. Um, and, you know, even in school or just throughout my life, nature has always been this, this pillar of, you know, who I am. It was always one of my chief interests and joys and provided a lot of comfort throughout my life. And so I studied biology in school, just wanting to, to build off of that. But the more that I studied science and biology, the less at home I felt, you know, in scientific classroom settings, uh, because understanding nature and wildlife in a, a different capacity than, than what I grew up learning, you know, just climbing trees or fishing or gardening and things, understanding it on a different level, it was really a spiritual reawakening for me. You know, it, I, I couldn't separate the spirit from the science. And to me, that strengthened my, my faith in both of them and my understanding in both of them. But, you know, in purely professional and objective scientific settings, you know, spirit isn't really given uh, space in the science dialogue. And so I had to continue searching for my space in in the science world uh, as someone from my background and someone who kind of has a, a spiritual obligation to my ancestors and my community. So uh, despite what I was, you know, the messages I was receiving in school, I listened to my heart and my elders and found a way I could still be a scientist while still being true to uh, my spiritual calling. And I knew it had to harken back to that tradition of healing that's in our family. You know, a lot of my relatives, they're therapists or uh, psychiatrists or teachers or advocates, in addition to being farmers and office workers and, and things like that. But, you know, there's a very uh, deep belief in, in the power of community healing. And I kind of found my place in that through restoration ecology. And the more that I started to learn about it, I you know, realized that was kind of what I was doing all along. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't learn about intergenerational trauma or like adverse childhood experiences until really recently. 
but it started to make sense that all these really significant points in my life that I had memories tied to being with nature or working in nature, I was also at the same time working through trauma or pain that I had experienced in my life. And I found that restoration ecology by healing our environment and healing our communities, that's also a practice of healing ourselves and our spirit. And so I now, just like any other person, I have moments where I question what I'm doing <laughs> both in my life as a human and professionally and you know what's my next step or how can I go about this project or this task better or do I need uh, more school or more certification or am I in the right job all of this but I always fall back to reminding myself that my purpose in being a scientist um, is to heal and that's really helped keep me grounded and now I also, you know, try to focus on, in addition to what I do professionally as a, a coastal resources scientist and as a PhD student studying urban forestry and environmental justice, um, I also bring my perspective to outreach and engagement, mostly to remind students who are interested in science that, you know, science isn't one single narrative. There are a lot of ways to bring your personal interest or your personal background into a scientific study in a way that you might not see represented now, but it doesn't mean that you can't bring that unique perspective and skill set and mold, you know, a scientific field of interest to meet you where you're at and to meet you at who you are. Um, so I just try to bring awareness to the fact that scientists can look a lot of different ways. Science is, you know, a lot more than, you know, just mixing chemicals or measuring things. Um, it's a lot more expansive than where we're usually taught in school. So I'm trying to revitalize that awareness of, you know, scientific knowledge that that goes beyond Linnaean taxonomic names and, and things like that. There's a whole spiritual knowledge base as well. Um, you know, that we need to recognize and respect as well. Yeah, anybody can be a scientist, and scientists look like everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the, um, this is what a scientist looks like, hashtag, I think it's on Twitter, or maybe Instagram, or both. Have you seen that? Yeah, I love it, and then there's I all the variations so many people. Too. You know, yeah. like, today we're showing that this is what a scientist looks like. I can be super glam one <laughs> evening, and then head to toe covered in marsh mud uh -huh. the next day and that doesn't make me any less of a scientist it also doesn't make me any less of you know a woman or a feminine person um, that you know I can be both or we can be athletic and also scientists mm -hmm. or we can be artistic and creative and kooky and <laughs> all of these human elements you know going back to talking about the purely objective scientific realm it's almost like in trying to preserve this idea that science has to be purely objective we dehumanize it a little bit and you know in some ways I understand why that's necessary to eliminate bias and error and things like that to boil it down to facts but there's some things that I think we 
uh, sell ourselves short on are some nuances that we're missing by dehumanizing every science. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, and so that starts by reminding us that humans are behind science. The scientists yeah. are, are there and we're people too. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're not robots. Uh, like and the, the process may be very, you know, systematic and adhere to some protocols for reasons, but we're still human in the way we communicate that or behave and just, you know, we're all people too. Um, and that can, we can make things more relatable because we are human and everybody else is human as well. Right. And it's a, an, an almost impossible to think that science happens completely in a vacuum. So you know, maybe that objectivity myth, you know, we need to start taking with a grain of salt. Like, yeah, we, you know, can eliminate certain bias or certain error here and there, but, you know, there's, there's always going to be some influences. Um, and maybe it's better to add that to our discussion instead of pretending like they don't exist. Yeah, I think acknowledging those kinds of things is a big step uh, in science and in everything, honestly. You're getting your PhD. You said urban forestry and what are you studying? I forgot already. Urban, it's an urban forestry program at Southern University. And so my focus is on environmental justice, remote sensing, GIS. And I am just about to finish my first semester. So don't ask me just yet how my research is going. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to because I knew you had just started, but I didn't know. Uh, and I knew you were going to Southern, which is awesome, um, but I didn't know uh, what exactly you were doing. So that's cool. Yeah, I have some ideas floating about, uh, you know, it would make sense to, you know, work on a dissertation project that's also connected to the work I do professionally to address some data gaps there. Um, but I know for sure I'm going to be researching swamps. I have a specific swamp in mind um that i'm not gonna mention because i don't know if i should yet <laughs> oh, okay. I like everything is so um still in the work so but definitely going to be looking at swamp ecology and swamp restoration and tying it to how to bring more traditional and community driven principles into our ecological and more environmental driven restoration Mm -hmm. uh, well that's awesome because from my experience working in the swamps they are struggling a lot of them for a variety of reasons uh some of them more complicated than others uh some areas more complicated than others too um so i think that's an awesome uh concept and i don't know that much about you but i know you're full of ideas so i'm <laughs> confident that you will come up with the right idea <laughs> The question is whether I can execute those ideas. <laughs> I'm sure you can. I'm sure you will find a way. I'll write it down and stay focused. I'm a, I'm a big idea person and I'm one of those energetic type folks who's like, we should do this, we should do this. And then, you know, sticking to it is another thing. But I, I get stuff done. Yeah. Well, I think that's okay because there are, I've been listening, well, I've been reading uh, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, um, mm -hmm. with my Homeward Bound group. And there are why people and there are how people, and there's a whole bunch of other personality things going on as well. But like most people are like one or the other. 
and I'm a how person, and I think that you might be a why person. Like, I have all these visions and ideas and things, and I'm just like, well, you have that, and I'll do them. Yeah, we need, we need all sorts of people so, to keep the world turning, so. So you need a how person to help you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's cool. Uh, I, in this pandemic time, I'm kind of missing the swamp, quite honestly, because right now is a beautiful time to be out there. But. It really is. I feel like nature is teasing us or, you know, teaching us a lesson, saying, you know, if y'all would have just taken care of me a little bit better or, you know, been a little smarter, I, I wouldn't have to lock y'all inside. So mm-hmm. to rub it in your faces, I'm going to give y'all the most beautiful weather that we've had all year or are probably yeah. going to have all year. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a super delightful spring for South Louisiana. Just saying a lot. <laughs> it has been perfectly uh, pleasant and breezy yeah. and sunny and yeah. only a handful of, of storms to worry about. Um, yeah. But I've been getting out anyway. Our neighborhood garden is looking better than ever and, and people are doing good at, you know, keeping their distance from each other mm-hmm. and, and lysoling the water hose and you know, the other shared yeah. equipment, yeah. Um, but we've good. had tomatoes and peppers and chard and herbs and all sorts of things growing, so that's nice. Oh, that's fantastic. I feel like community has really grown a lot during this time, which I hope stays true. Um, yeah, I, I think so too, because I think even if it's something that was lacking in our day-to-day life before, I think so many people a lot of people recognized that it was missing and said, oh, I wish I had more time for this or that. And there are a lot of folks who didn't realize how much they were missing and they feel it mentally, but also in their body. So many people are saying, I had no idea how sleep deprived I was. Now that I don't have to wake up and do my commute or I'm not wasting time and energy on all these other extracurriculars, I'm well rested and I feel better. So I, I think people are going to you know, have that initial rush maybe to try and get back to normal to make up for the feelings of isolation and scared and restlessness. Um, but I think, you know, people are, or I hope people are going to kind of step back a little bit and question how much they need to be doing, how much they need to be driving and running about. And, you know, do you really need to stretch yourself and your schedule this thin or, you know, how much time should we be spending with our family? And when did you last see or call up on your, your mama or, or something? I think people mm-hmm. are using this time to remember what's important and reconnect to things that they didn't prioritize before. So I, I think our hope for all of our, you know, wellness that will carry these things forward when we are not on stay at home order. Yeah, I hope going with our theme, I think that's the right word for it. I hope that this is a like community style and self healing, like people realizing what's important um, in their families, in their lives, in their places they live, all those things, the different levels. So maybe we as people can heal the areas around ourselves, urban or not, I guess. But yeah, I, I hope so. And I think we have the capacity for it so long as we remember this feeling Mm -hmm. uh, both of what it's like to feel like we don't have control and don't know what's going on and you know how more frequently do we want these types of scenarios to to happen and we know you know a lot of 
scientists from different fields are pointing this, things like this will continue to happen. And if we don't address uh, certain issues like climate change and, um, you know, proper handling of, of food stuff and, you know, how we congregate and, and you know, just cleanliness and hygiene mm -hmm. things, things that we need to be more aware of. Um, you know, I, th I think we'll definitely take that away. And then on a personal level, I, I know everyone's experiencing this differently. And I would be really hard pressed to think that people would come out of this experience unchanged, that they could go back to just doing things as they were before. Yeah, I know I don't want to. So uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in that either. Uh, I mean, I want to get back to field work. I want to get back to field work. I simultaneously miss it and was also burnt out by it. So <laughs> I would like some balance in there maybe, in moving forward if possible. Uh, and if that balance is me working from home one day a week when I'm not in the field or something, like whatever it may be, I would, I would hope I can find that and that other people can find that. Yeah. Um, and that's what we need is, is balance. You know, everything that all these bigger issues that we talk about, uh, you know, like climate change or, uh, you know, hurricane preparedness or coastal land loss or anything like that. It's, it's about the imbalances that are in our culture and our environment now. So if we're feeling that on a micro scale about how it feels to finally take a breath and relax and, you know, prioritize our time better and feel like we can balance things better. Imagine how good we would all feel if we did that collectively and put more balance into our lifestyles and our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be amazing if we did that. Um, I, I'm still thinking about restoration ecology because, I mean, you know, I'm in a similar field, pretty much the same field as you. Um, and I you know, <laughs> talk about coastal restoration all the time, right? But like, I always think about it from like a purely scientific standpoint because that's just what my background is. And because I guess I've been doing it so long, maybe I've, I've lost a little bit of the non-science. Anything, if I came to it with that to start with, I don't remember because it's been so long, but I like the way you described it and why it appealed to you. Um, because it is a healing process because you're trying to restore it to the way it was before people or whatever damaged it. Um, but I've never explicitly thought about it like that, I guess, in those words, as opposed to like in a scientific Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a really great way to say that. Thanks. And I, I think, you know, with ecology, one of the things that sets it apart from other fields and that can be difficult for folks outside of our field to, to grasp is that ecology is the study of interconnectedness, really, in the environment. It's about understanding how the, the tides uh, influence erosion, which might influence uh, shrimp populations, which would influence, uh, you know, shrimp predators and how we interact with those type of uh, wildlife creatures and it's all interconnected. Um, so bringing that to a, a spiritual realm, like, to me, it seems like a natural crossover. Um, and I, I think in science, if we don't bring in a human element or a spiritual element to it, then it's like leaving out one of those environmental considerations. It would be like if you didn't look at hydrology in an environment, 
you know, like an environmental scientist, of course, you're going to look at the hydrology and the soil and the air and the nutrients. You're going to look at all those things. So why is it so far-fetched that maybe we need to bring more, uh, you know, community or wellness or spiritual considerations into this conversation when we know and can quantify the effects that environmental degradation has on our health and our well-being. You know, that's something we can validate using scientific and like Western scientific methods. So if we know that air pollution leads to worse air quality, which leads to medical conditions, you know, how could we not argue also that environmental degradation leads to, you know, a spiritual feeling of dis-ease or feelings of disconnectedness to your sense of home or your sense of culture, which could manifest in mental health issues or other physical symptoms, you know, it, it can all be connected. And just in terms of how we bring that into the restoration consideration is, you know, I, I always default to the three L's of language, land rights, and liberation, you know, bringing new language into the conversation or, or old language, you know, revitalizing indigenous languages and, and things like how we talk about place names, you know, that in a sense is also restoring cultures and communities by maintaining these languages and, and this heritage, which also needs to be restored and protected just as much as the swamps, you know, and so we talk about land loss, you know, that, that of course is a human element because it's not just that we're losing habitat, we're losing where people live, where people work, where they gather and hunt food and where their ancestors are buried. You know, so that of course is gonna have a human element and a spiritual element connected to it. So that's something that also, you know, we also have to restore our spirit when we're talking about coastal restoration because our, our spirits are hurting too as we lose our land and we have to deal with disasters and hurricanes and all of this adaptation. And if we don't give people space to process what they're going through spiritually and emotionally and mentally and dealing with these environmental issues, then we're only addressing part of the problem. Yeah, and people have deep ties to land. Um, it's maybe not always land they grew up on, but often it is. Uh, or where they're from or their their family's from um and i i think that and i'm sure i've been guilty of this not considering that just aspect of talking when talking about ecology because my background's in wildlife so i just tend to think just about wildlife and i'm sure I've, a lot of people do this which is unfortunate um because it's not just wildlife because people live there and there's all these other aspects like you just mentioned so i i hope it's not actually that far-fetched to consider everything? I don't think it's far-fetched. I think it's a matter of putting models in place about how we do that because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of scientists, they're used, they're used to looking at it a certain way. And especially scientists, we love to quantify things. And, you know, how do you quantify spiritual connection or how do you quantify ancestral ties or, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of pride and, living on your your tribal nation's home territory you can't quantify those things but they 
have a ripple effect in community, touching on everything from, you know, economics to domestic violence to all, all these community issues that we deal with. Um, you know, it doesn't, like I said, science doesn't happen in a vacuum. So even if as restoration ecologists, you know, domestic violence stemming from a result of, uh, you know, Deepwater Horizon oiling and uh, lack of job opportunities, like, yeah, that might not be our particular wheelhouse or what we're able to focus on, um, but it's something that we need to keep in consideration because maybe from a biological standpoint, we may have ideas that can contribute to helping other issues that are that are related to it, like novel economic industries or livelihoods that can be developed to adapt to climate change or, um, you know, empowering people to uh, teach others, like each one teach one, you, you know, just about um, sharing your own knowledge of wildlife and the environment um, to teach someone else so that they might be more self-sufficient if they need to be to know, yeah, that dock is edible. Um, you know, don't eat this sumac with the white berries, but the sumac with the red berries is fine. You know, that's knowledge that we can um, help people as biologists that can help community in real ways as well. Mm -hmm. What was that phrase you just said? Each one, teach one. I've never heard that before. Is that from something? You know, I think it's just a, like a Black cultural saying. It, uh, I know it, or yeah, I know it to come from um, slavery times, you know, if mm. a, a slave was given the space or the opportunity to learn to read and to write, you would try to pass that knowledge on because it, you know, could help save a life or, you know, help support people. Um, and it's just the same thing, whatever knowledge that you have and possess, if you teach someone else it too, then it, it's going to continue on and that knowledge expands and it ripples. Uh, it sounded like it was from something, but I had never heard it. And so I'm going to have to do my homework and figure it out uh, because I need to learn new things. Um, yeah, I think it's just one of those, those sayings that just lives on and yeah. it can be applied in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but especially when it comes to, you know, how can I, you know, even outside of ecology, you know, how can folks from sciences um, or scientific fields where they might feel a little disconnected from people, you know, even if, you know, we're researching something that is directly relevant to humanity or, or wellness or whatever, when you're pouring over your samples in, in the SAS lab or something, you feel really disconnected from people sometimes. Yeah. Like we're just creating knowledge in this vacuum. How is it actually going to be applied? Mm -hmm. How are these stats going to someday uh, result in meaningful change? You know, and something as simple as just teaching someone or talking to someone about what you do in finding areas where their experience can inform yours and vice versa. You know, that's uh, a really good practice of community too. Yeah, I, and I think scientists uh, are, maybe it's not a personality thing. Maybe it's just like a, I don't know. Like we've just gotten in this like habit maybe of um, worrying about our science and 
you know, some people have to worry about publications and things like that. And just like forgetting about people and forgetting about that whole aspect. Um, public or publish or perish, right? Yeah, like that's a thing in academic. <laughs> yeah. For the journals. Yeah, and I think that we just forget about people and forget to have empathy and forget to consider the entire picture um, because it's not directly within the experiment or the research or whatever, but it doesn't mean it's not related and involved. Um, yeah, and you know, there's, we all have different skills and, mm -hmm. um, you know, different callings in life. And, you know, it's a great thing to have knowledge be ever expanding and increasingly documented. And that's a great gift too. Um, and there are people who create their entire careers on science communication to bring mm -hmm. the research that other people are producing and translate that to you know, a, a non-science audience um, to take our research out of the journals and mm -hmm. like, so, you know, they researched zippity-zoppity-zoo. What does that mean for you? Like, can you apply that in your everyday life? Does it mean that something's going to change or we could be doing something differently? Um, so I, I think, I think a, a trap in science is to just produce knowledge for the sake of knowledge and lose sight of wanting to produce science that can be realistically applied and realistically applied in meaningful ways, you know, like addressing pressing problems, um, you know, keeping things focused on our actual needs. Yeah, and what you said about people having, everybody has different strengths, that's where I feel like collaboration is important because your strengths are different than my strengths, even though we're in the same or similar fields, you know. Um, even if we have the exact same knowledge, which we obviously would not because we're different people and have different backgrounds, but even if we had that, like our personalities are different, what the way we behave or the way our interests are different. So that using that is not a weakness. I think that's a, that's a powerful skill when you can like pull all these pieces together to do all of the different parts where you can publish and get the science out there for everybody, but get it there for, you know, the rest of us who uh, aren't in the journal world, which is most people. Right. And then we just have to respect and recognize that different skill sets, mm -hmm. one isn't inherently better than the other. You mm -hmm. know, some folks may look down on certain disciplines or deem outreach and engagement as you know, not necessary or not important, um, but they they are in their own right. So I, I think we, as scientists, we have to get out of this very strict mindset of scientific success can only be translated in the number of publications or the number of citations or the number of grants um, that you're a PI or co-PI on or how, how much money you're bringing to a certain foundation. You know, those are all good and important things, but success in science can look like so many other things. So I think we need to challenge ourselves to stay open-minded as people who, you know, claim to, to be all about the expansion of knowledge and opening minds. And, you know, we ourselves have to remember to keep an open mind. There are a lot of things that we still don't know that we may never know. Um, but just because we haven't figured them out yet or 
fully, we don't fully understand them yet, or maybe historically we have, you know, demonized certain types of knowledge or discredited certain ways of knowing, it, it doesn't mean that they're less important or less valuable. So we have to keep an open mind about a lot of the knowledge that has been forgotten and destroyed and that needs to be revitalized and brought back into the scientific discourse because um, we're losing a lot of necessary vital information to these big issues that we're looking at if we don't consider all resources and all facets of knowledge and, and ways of looking at things. I personally, me personally, I have no idea how to pull all of these things together. Um, like you said, we're losing knowledge. Uh, and I don't, I have no idea how to pull those things into everything else. Your sound cut out, but I think you, you said it perfectly when you said, you know, we need to remember collaboration is key, you know, and as scientists, we tend to work in these silos of just focusing strictly in our field and with people who are also strictly in our field. And I think there are opportunities to do more interdisciplinary work, you know, to have uh, experts from multiple disciplines working on a, a similar project, but addressing different aspects of it. And right now that happens, but those studies are published in uh, very disciplined specific journals and there's not a lot of collaboration between those fields, even if they're looking at similar issues from different angles. Um, so I think there could be space to develop more interdisciplinary research proposals so that, you know, if you're looking at a specific swamp or a specific species, um, imagine how much knowledge could be exchanged between experts from different fields who are all researching the same thing, but from very different angles. And imagine, you know, the synthesis that could come from all of those experts um, developing solutions together based on their research. Yeah, I, I, I like that. No, it's true. There are not a lot like that. I love the concept though, and I wish that that was, uh, I wish that was life. <laughs> yeah, I it's all different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, you kind of get that in a, in a conference setting. I think that's one of the few places where people really step out of their comfort zone, you know, when there's so many different talks and posters and workshops to visit. Um, it is nice to say, oh, you know, I've looked at 10 different nutrient dynamic workshops today. I'm going to go to a sciences and the arts talk, or I'm going to go to this random thing on hurricanes and like mapping weather over 3000 years, you know, it's, it's just something different. Yeah. Part of it is because you know, after five days of a conference, sometimes you get bored of listening to the same type of talks over and over again, and you want to think about something different. But, you know, those are also good spaces mm -hmm. to, you know, expand your mind a little bit. And it, it's been interesting watching the transition from in-person conferences to virtual conferences. And in some ways, I like it a lot, because as people are doing their presentations or their talks, people are having slides conversations in the chat boxes that are that are relevant, but you're seeing people able to kind of collaborate in real time 
in response to what the lecturer is talking about. And in some ways, I think that's a, a bonus um, that you don't get from in-person conferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you're sitting at a talk at a conference, you might take some notes on your phone or you might just listen and have questions in your head and then forget them um, after, you know, or maybe the person that you would want to talk to about it is in a different talk. And so I think that's interesting. I, w I haven't been to any of those things, but I can see how that could be a, you know, surprise bonus. Yeah, it's, it's been nice to connect with people um, online that way in ways we wouldn't. Because like you said, you might hear a great talk at a conference and a, a few other people raise question, questions and you say, oh, I really want to talk to that person afterwards. But then they're out the door as soon as the talk ends or you have to leave a couple minutes early to get to your presentation or something. It's um, mm -hmm. it actually surprisingly challenging to connect with people sometimes at conferences, even though we're all in the same place for like a week. <laughs> yeah, it can be. Around. Yeah, it for sure can be. Uh, yeah, and the, the technology we have to be able to collaborate from, you know, all over the world really is pretty amazing. Uh, and I, I like that it's getting used. I don't like the reason it has to be used, but I like that it's getting used. And maybe it will um, sort of allow collaboration to continue moving forward across all these things, or at least make it easier. Yeah, I think in some ways, um, you know, it's same struggle of balancing, you know, there are people who might not be able to attend events in person otherwise, um, and now they're able to participate virtually. And then you have folks who don't have reliable internet service mm -hmm. where they're from, or, you know, the, the power goes out intermittently or something. And so that makes it more difficult for those folks. Um, mm -hmm. But I hope during this time we you know, expand our, our use of what technology we have available so that when things shift back or, or whatever happens, um, we don't revert to one way or the other. I think, you know, as we're talking about new ideas and staying open-minded and new ways to collaborate, I think in everything that we do, we have to not get stuck in what we have done. And I think, especially with, with science, that's, you know, it's more credible if it's how it's always been done. It's been validated and confirmed. And, um, you know, these citations, Ellen's 2002 said this, and, you know, it gives you more plausibility if it's old hat. But in some ways, a lot of the problems that we're dealing with have never been dealt with before. So they require new challenges um, or, or new ways of thinking. Um, and then as more people who have been denied access to science and access to leadership and access to having a voice at the table. You know, there are a lot of perspectives and knowledge that has been absent from these scientific discourses. So we need to challenge ourselves as scientists to recognize just because we've been doing things a certain way for hundreds of years, that's not the only way it's ever been done. That's not the only way it can be done and not limit ourselves in our own capacity. Like we have the capacity for change. We have the capacity to always advance and, and continue in new ways. Um, and I think we have to start opening our minds up to the possibility of cultural shifts in science as well. Like what we, what we think of when we think of science and uh, what questions we're asking 
to just yeah. overhaul our whole process. I know. I hope we go to a new normal, not the old normal. Yeah. A lot of ways. Shifting to new, new normals. Yeah. Not, there were a lot of things. Of in the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying, you know, not be afraid of change. You know, as scientists, we revel in new discoveries and you know, <laughs> novel techniques. You know, you publish when you have new data. Yeah. So we should be excited for this opportunity to bring in traditional knowledge or local knowledge or um, forgotten knowledge and ways of thinking that haven't informed mass-produced science yet. Like imagine the developments um, and the advancements for all of our well-being that that we could embrace if we started embracing new ways of thinking. You know, mm -hmm. it's just this whole uh, I don't want to say untapped because I don't want it to, I don't want to use like exploitive or extractive language, but, um, you know, it's a whole plethora of yet to be respected and explored and, um, you know, acknowledged knowledge base from a professional scientific standpoint. Yeah, I think that's a probably a good way to, to say that. Thank you for the reassurance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have any comments because I feel like you said it all. Uh, oh, that's good. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I obviously don't know everything, but by the way, guys, I don't know everything. <laughs> um, in case I was surprised anybody, because I feel like in every podcast episode, I'm like, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think that everybody having different backgrounds and knowing different things is valuable, um, because things that you know are things that are different than what I know, or, you know, as an example, but, and I would like to think that people in general would value other people's knowledge in general, no matter whatever the background is, um, especially if it's not been acknowledged, um, like you said, uh, yeah. We'd like to think that, but we, uh, it's a little bit we, know, we know there are some people out there who think, well, I got my degree from this place, or I researched under this person, so I think I know what I'm talking about more than you, and yeah, they very well may know a lot more than I do, or than Joe Schmo does, or whatever, um, but it's just a it's different knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think it's going back to, you know, we can't devalue certain knowledge or, or act like because we have certain types of knowledge that we know better than, than certain people. Um, you know, and, and that's different from respecting that with more education or more study, you know, you are a, um, a topical expert on something. No one's trying to discredit that. But never forget that even as a topical expert with decades of experience under your belt doesn't mean that you still that it doesn't mean that you know everything. There's still things to be learned and, you know, from from different sources. Um, I think we just have to approach every experience as an opportunity to continue learning and to continue growing. And if you dismiss people off the bat because they don't have the same education that you do, or they don't work at the same place or know the same people or 
they talk a certain way and you kind of tune people out based on your prejudices and you're missing out on an opportunity to learn um, or to, you know, exchange knowledge and to develop a relationship and to build community. Um, and, you know, as scientists, we often get docked for being unapproachable or cold or, or something. So something as simple as, you know, having a casual conversation with someone and they walk away saying, hey, I met the coolest scientist. Listen what, listen what Rachel does. She, she works with maps and she's a scientist. She's out in the field and, you know, and she taught me this and, you know, you could walk away learning something too, but that's a bridge that you built. Um, and if you just wrote someone off thinking that they weren't worth your time or they had nothing to teach you or nothing to give you, you know, that's a connection that wouldn't have been built. Absolutely. I feel like learning something new is always important, but that doesn't necessarily mean like in a formal way, like it doesn't have to be in a class or whatever or training. You, like, as evidenced by what everything I've learned so far, just from talking to people for the podcast, I'm learning so much just from talking to people. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's a really, it's, I feel like it's actually a very impactful way and maybe probably overlooked in some things because it makes it more, because it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's more like personable. So you maybe it sticks a little bit better. Um, maybe that's not true for everybody, but it's true for me. Yeah different learning styles and mm -hmm. and like you were saying you're learning so much just from this what do they say like the more you learn or the more you know the more you realize you don't know <laughs> so it's like you know we can't have this false idea of like i'm going to accumulate all the degrees and all the certificates and all the accolades to show that i know it all it's like really the more that you're learning you should recognize like oh there's a whole other area that I never explored or I learned nobody at all has researched this like that's that's wild you know yeah. um yeah just we can't approach science or you know knowledge as this finite thing it's like well folks we've researched everything we've discovered everything we published yeah. everything on yeah, everything we're done. we did it <laughs> you know we yeah. we conquered the world like <laughs> yeah no it doesn't work that way <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think science, you know, traditionally, that's, that's what it's been about. It's been like, let me travel to this exotic realm and document the plant life and send it back to the king and we'll name it after the Lord who funded this research expedition. You know, like it's all been about conquering and conquest and collecting and hoarding information um, and taking it out of a cultural context. Mm -hmm. And now I, I or over the past several decades there's been that resurgence and like recognizing that if you take knowledge and information out of the cultural context you're not getting all of the information that has been preserved over generations and i think now especially with climate change and climate science kind of ramping up and you know us applying new techniques and, and new studies to address this problem i think we're starting to recognize even more that Though that lost generational knowledge of our natural environment, that's a key thing that we're missing and how we address, you know, how we find that balance in our, our environment, that's been missing. So that's especially important with where we live in, in coastal Louisiana. That needs to be brought into the conversation. 
systems. Otherwise, we're just perpetuating the same issue of using piecemeal knowledge or a, a flawed or imperfect understanding of a situation and trying to run forward with solutions uh, while missing a really key component of the whole, the whole vision. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about all the coastal restoration projects. And while I think that the, the plan, I think, as far as the restoration of the land itself, I think is good. I'm now realizing that maybe it's not the whole picture, right? I, I haven't read it recently, but like maybe there's room for improvement. But there's always room for improvement in everything. So that's not necessarily a criticism, exactly. Yeah. More of a general critique of the world <laughs> and how we do things. But uh, yeah, I don't, I have to go back and look and see like what's happening in South Louisiana, like on a whole, a whole scale. versus like the little bits I am, you know, used to being in my bubble in. I think one um, trap that we risk getting into with, the coastal restoration conversation in Louisiana is patting ourselves on the back with every marsh creation project and ridge restoration project um, and not rem not remembering that these are short-term fixes. Mm -hmm. You know, if yeah, we can build as much marsh as we want and restore as much uh, as many ridges and barrier islands as we want, but it's it's a short-term fix to essentially give us more time to adapt. And yeah. so if we only focus on the project construction part of it and we don't also address the holistic cultural issues or, you know, economic issues that got us to where we are now, then 50, 70 years down the road, we're going to be in the same exact position. Yeah, it can be a stopgap maybe than an actual solution long term. Right. I guess it depends on scale because 50 years is a long time, but it's not long term in like geology. That's like a blip. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and we have to remember that when we're talking about this because mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a really feel good moment when we do create marsh. It's like, look at this, you know, 700 acre salt marsh. We love it. The herons mm -hmm. love it. We're saving the coast. And that's, that's amazing that we can yeah. do that and we have the tools and technology to do that. Um, but we want to be thinking several generations ahead like mm -hmm. it's not enough just to restore a barrier island for the next 50 years um you know what are we going to do when you know our, our great great grandkids are here you know do we want to just give them the blueprints be like okay well you have to rebuild those barrier islands in 50 years the system like the ecosystem is still broken but <laughs> we we will leave you some band-aids for later yeah you know? so we it's good that we have those tools at our disposal now, but we have to not get complacent and have to keep challenging ourselves to think of how do we develop longer term solutions. And that is where the community and uh, our traditional tenants and our, our community and indigenous spirituality, that needs to be in the conversation about long-term visions. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it, it might not be um, like the space for every biologist to be involved in those type of conversations, but it's a difference between restoration that we can get on the ground today versus 
how do we get all these different experts in the room to -hmm. develop a long-term vision? And if that long-term vision isn't equitable for people and isn't community driven, it's probably exacerbating the same problems. Mm -hmm. I'm still thinking, I'm thinking about barrier islands right now. Like restoring the barrier islands is fantastic and does need to be done. But if we don't also, you know, reduce emissions, which is causing sea level to rise and, you know, the climate to change and the Gulf to be hotter and hurricanes to be stronger, then it's like almost seems futile, though it is still important. I'm not trying to like discount it because we do still need to do that, but we need to do all those other things as well. Uh, yeah, it's like if you, if you lost an arm, like, you know, I walked out today and like a eagle came and just ripped off my arm or something. You know, of course I would staunch the bleeding. Like I would wrap it in a towel or something or tie some bandanas around it. Like, of course I would do that. But I would also look into, okay, where, how do I get my arm back? Do I need a prosthetic? I should probably go to urgent care or the hospital or something. Mm-hmm. And so like, I feel like stopping the bleeding that's our bare island reconstruction. That's mm-hmm. our March creation. Of course, we're going to do that. We need those immediate fixes. But yeah. like you said, if we're not also looking at reducing emissions or exploitive industries or environmental quality, then that's like just stopping the bleeding and saying like, oh, well, that's it. Like, who cares if I get an infection? Who cares if the hawk is building a nest with my arm? It's whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like we can build all the barrier islands and that's a state level thing, I guess. I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, it is, the state is doing it, but you know, it, but the emissions thing is global. And so that to me, I don't know how you pull all those people together and all the things together to make people, I don't know. I feel a little lost. People, I mean, people are doing it, but it's like, yeah. You can't do all of the good that the world needs. True. Like the world needs all of the good that you can do. So like no one expects us to individually go out and cure cancer, get global admissions to zero, like never step on an ant ever, like to just be absolutely perfect and save the world and, and mm-hmm. fix all of our problems. Like we, no. we can't do that. And it does get daunting, you know, when you're in um, the environmental field or, or any field that, you know, there's crises hanging over your head all the time. Um, it, it does get exhausting to be like, uh, oh, I feel like my efforts are, are futile or, you know, I, I can't fix everything right now. Um, but we can have hope in that every little thing that we do is an improvement for tomorrow. And that has to be the hope that we, you know, that helps us get to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we don't see the solutions to these issues in our lifetimes, you know, if we leave this earth in a better state than we came into it in, that's a win in my book. And Mm -hmm. there will be people after us who continue this work and carry on that legacy and they're going to leave things better than than we left it to them and that that's the 
the message that we have to instill in people is we have to look beyond our lifetimes um, for successes and you know, whether that be reallocating financial resources or, or anything to prioritizing these long-term solutions or finding a balance between the long-term solutions and the short-term solutions, but we can't give up on the long-term solutions. We can't just say, oh, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. So we're not going to do it. Or it would be too much work to change everything. It's like, it, it would be a lot of work, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth it, you know, and you just get better and get stronger and get smarter about how we approach these things. And then it gets less hard to actually meet these type of environmental goals that we need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just because it's hard doesn't mean we should not do it. That's not a reason to not do it. Right. Not a reason to not do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I often feel like the kid from the peanuts that's like constantly being rained on. Um, <laughs> talking about, I don't remember the character's name, but I often feel like that. However, what you said a second ago makes me feel a lot better because if everybody is doing everything they can in their roles and doing, you know, and pulling everything together as much as they can in their own capacity. I would like to think all these pieces will work together and the puzzle will be moving forward in a good direction. So, cause that's about the only way I think this is gonna work. And I think it is, you know, we get a lot of really awful media messages and there are certain things that are kind of out of our control or so it feels like, and we're like, wow, we should just give up now. It can't get any worse than this. Um, but what you're not seeing being highlighted by the media is all of the really intense community organization and mobilization and mutual aid and like all of these movements that have been growing for years. They've like been kind of in the shadows, you know, like not getting the representation they need or the resources they need, but they haven't given up and they're still growing. And you know, I, I feel that more and more, you know, as someone early in my career, I come into certain community organizing spaces and it's all new to me. And to think like, wow, they've been at this for 20 or 30 years and they've grown so much. Like imagine where we're going to be in, in another 30 years. You know, if we feel like our impact is small, it was even smaller so and so years ago, um, but it's just going to keep growing if we stick at it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you're right about that. Yeah, and it's, it's really easy to, to lose track sometimes. I definitely have my moments where uh, the world is not getting my good because I have no spoons and no energy. And I'm just like, y'all are lucky that I got out, out of bed today and that I'm not hissing in people's faces. Um, <laughs> I cannot give any more of myself today. But then yeah. I recuperate and I recover. And then I'm back at it. Yeah. And it's all about, yeah, we have to restore ourselves. Um, you know, and there are certain things in, in this work that if it's not fulfilling for us personally, we're not going to stick at this work. So we also have to challenge ourselves. Like, how do we, you know, restore our work environments so that people who need to be in these fights or in these spaces, they want to stay here. Because um, if we keep icing out people who really need to be in these spaces, we're going to keep getting the same sorts of narrative, the same type of thinking, and we're going to find ourselves in the same place 30 years from now. 
And I really hope we don't. Um, slight tangent. Have you ever heard of Kim Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson? He's a sci-fi author. I haven't. Okay. He has written several books that take place in the future. Um, one called New York 2140, which takes place in New York in the year 2140, about like what life looks like after things like 10 meters of sea level rise and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, so that was really interesting. But the book I'm reading right now is called 2312, about the year 2312. Um, and people are living on different planets and stuff, but then, you know, they travel all over. But there are people still on Earth, and they're talking about like the time frame, you know, so it's 2020 now. Mm -hmm. And in his book, which came out a couple years ago, uh, we would be in the phrase called the dithering, where people like know it's a problem, but aren't doing anything about it. And it goes on to like 2060, I think, in the book, like when, you know, you laid out the eras, like, oh, God, I hope that's not really what's going to end up happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then he goes on to like, he like laid it all out. And I was like, oh, he's probably right. And I hope he's not. I'm going to prove him wrong. Uh, well, that, in 40 years from now to see if yeah. this has really been did the, the dithering or if it's been the buck up and mm -hmm. get stuff done. Era yeah. Where people say, like, do you want to be, do you want this era to be called the dithering? <laughs> no, then get up off your butt. Like, let's do but, something. Let's make changes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think this book just came out, like, in the last couple of years, so. It's just that that just like stuck with me. It's particularly it, it just reminds whatever whatever keyword you said a second ago made me think of it. I'm just like, God, I hope that doesn't become real. Yeah, I remember um, I read Oryx and Crake by Margaret mm. Atwood when I was in high school, and that one really stuck with me. I remember, yeah, that, you know, she connects, you know, apocalyptic futures with genetically modified food or, you know, mass produced mm -hmm. commercialized food with um, sexual exploitation. Cause there's a whole chapter in that book about how we treat our earth with how we view women and human uh -huh. trafficking and abuse and how we interact with people. And that one really stuck with me as a really awful glimpse of the future, but snippets that you can see happening today. Um, yeah. So yeah, we, we really have to take those type of Texas warnings, like, man, I really don't want this to be the dithering. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll recommend this to a few people and, um, you know, it'll get their gears turning. Mm -hmm. Like today I was on the virtual kickoff for Rising Voices 8, which is, um, you know, a mm, cross-national um, tribal gathering of atmospheric scientists and ecologists and tribal representatives and different folks. And we were all talking, you know, we know the issues, how do we reach more people or how do we get people motivated to move? And it's about, you know, new messaging to reach people that we haven't reached yet to relate to people in a way um, to find where we have common ground. Like a lot of times we focus on our, our differences um, and I think if, you know, we got more people to remember, we really, it's a great idea to say, let's all go to Mars, but until that's realistic for everyone, like this is our home, uh, right. you know, we all have to breathe the same air, really, even if you're a millionaire or if you're homeless, you know, we're breathing the same air, essentially. 
Um, so we need, we both need air quality, um, mm-hmm. you know, finding ways, whether it be a sci-fi novel um, to remind people about their, their worst nightmare of the future or rewatching a Mad Max and being like, do you want to be on a mad dash through the desert looking for gas and water? No, then turn off the faucet when you brush or, or something like related yeah. to like, there are real consequences for our actions today. They're really exaggerated in these movies, but maybe that's what it will take to, to get people to realize it's not that far-fetched, these type of dystopian futures that people imagine. You know, if we don't do our due diligence to, to correct the, the issues that got us to this point, you know, that, those type of futures aren't that far-fetched. No, you're totally right. And that's what I think makes Margaret Atwood and Kim Stanley Robinson so terrifying to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the futures that they both write about are plausible and realistic and terrifying. Yeah, and they write so well, so it's sometimes easy to just, like, forget that it's, you know, could happen because it's, like, this well-written sci-fi novel. But it's totally possible and let's not do that. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. Yeah. yeah. I definitely recommend those two books though because it was interesting to see like what New York would look like if there was, you know, an additional 40 feet of water in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And it became like Venice almost where instead of streets you had, you know, over the streets. It was because it was water, you know. And that was interesting and terrifying. Yeah, terrifying. My boyfriend did call me out the other day for saying that 90% of movies or books I enjoy are dystopian. So I'll just add them to my ever-growing dystopian media viewing list. I think that there's things we can learn from that, at least so we can know what we don't want to happen. Like, nope, that's terrible. I don't want that to happen. I was trying to describe Gattaca to him. He never uh, before. Uh, and I started off, I honestly don't remember it all that well because I watched it in like seventh grade same. class. Same. Um, but I was saying, you know, so there's this, um, there's this person who doesn't have the right genetic information, but like he passes it off as someone else's who does have the qualifications to go to space. And the way I was describing it, I misremembered it. I was like, oh, I think it was his brother who died. Um, and so, like, he has to go into space for his brother, and he said, that's Avatar, babe. You're describing Avatar. Avatar. I was like, no, no, it's not. I promise. They're different movies. And I kept describing it. And he's like, oh, yeah, Jeanette, no, that's Avatar. Are you sure it's not Avatar? I was like, I know what Avatar is. It's not Avatar. Yeah. Gattaca. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that movie very well either. It's been a long time. But, Yeah. I read a lot of science fiction. I can't fiction. remember it well enough to describe yeah. it to someone. <laughs> I need to rewatch it, I guess. I, I think I'm going to as well. <laughs> yeah. What were the, the languages you said in the beginning when you introduced yourself? Well, the first was Chata, and then the second was Creole. And I, I just yeah. said, hello, my name is. Yeah. Uh, I kind of had a guess at the second one, but I wasn't sure. And I, wasn't, I had no idea about the first one. So you say yeah. halito in Chata to say hi and Sahachasayat is my name is and Chimachukma is how are you? So 
just some little basic things that I know I'm trying to to learn more yeah and, you know some of the tribes like the Gina they have recordings um, of like their elders teaching and things like that and um, the Chata Nation of Oklahoma they have really extensive libraries online as well and um, some of my friends here in Louisiana and in Bulbancha or down the bayou or something you know we piecemeal kind of teach each other and, and share, um, you know, the words and the phrases that we remember. So mm -hmm. Each one teach one again. Yeah, wanted to make sure that the language isn't lost because nobody wants that, so. Right, yeah, and especially some of the tribes um, that are smaller or displaced, like Louisiana ended up being kind of like the resting place for a lot of tribes that were displaced from Florida or Mississippi or other parts of the Gulf um, and they kind of either camped out here to avoid being translocated all the way to Oklahoma or they were here and their nations just kind of were fragmented and relocated um, and they kind of coalesced into other, other you know mixed tribal groups that then developed into a new community. Um, so some of the languages are similar and, and some are more different um, and there's less um, documented text of them but you still have some people who are you know culture bearers who keep that language alive that's good that's really important to keep those things alive yeah there's this is actually this is like perfect powwow season um there is supposed to be a lot of different like spring gatherings uh, you know, and powwows around this time of year, Easter gatherings and stuff. So uh, I am really super grateful for the, the virtual connections that I've been able to have, um, like new moon gatherings. And like I said, the Rising Voices conference that they're doing virtually um, to kind of stay connected uh, and share some, some cultural reflection with folks, you know, as we're missing powwows, we have the social distance powwow and the virtual vendor page and stuff. So, you know, I have like a virtual beating Snapchat group uh, with some friends, so, which has been great. That's one of the best things about the stay at home order is I've been able to craft more, which is something that I never have enough time to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is your craft of choice? Right now I've been beating a lot. Um, because it's newer to me. Um, like I, this was the first time that I tried doing a beaded piece on a loom. Mm -hmm. um, and I treated myself to a bunch of little cabochons, like centerpiece jewels so that I can bead earrings around. Um, so I've been kind of going overboard with that. I have like 30 horse cabochons because I'm just obsessed with horses. <laughs> so fantasizing about all the horse earrings I'm gonna have <laughs> in the future. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, though. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, that's been fun. Um, I'm like braiding keychains for folks mm -hmm. and yeah, I bust out the sewing machine. Um, but it hasn't happened yet, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. Uh, something you said reminded me of another book. Have you read There There by Tommy Orange? No, but I've had people recommend his work. Yeah, I. It was, it's really well reviewed, which is why I read it, because it popped up like in the library on the app. Um, 
as like available popular things. And I was like, well, that sounds interesting. But I've learned so much reading that book, even though it's, it's told like as a story, it's not, it's, you know, it's told as fiction, although uh, it's obviously based in reality, like a lot of things are. But uh, it just like helped me learn a lot about all these cultures I know nothing about. Um, and it was just a really good book in general, but. Yeah, I'll have to, one, I need my library card, but two, I'm gonna add it to my library list once I can get a library card. Yeah. Um, right now I've been reading some of Zora Neale Hurston's collection of folk tales and some of her um, kind of like anthropological works. And so that's been, that's been really nice. I can, you know, read a couple stories here and there. Um, mm -hmm. And like you said, it similarly, it's kind of capturing a cultural snapshot, you know, way back when, um, and like the Black South and, mm -hmm. you know, early 1900s, early, you know, earlier decades of the 1900s. Um, so that's, it's really interesting to hear some of the tales and especially to hear some tales that like, I know from childhood or characters that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. and to see how those stories have changed or have, you know, continued on. Yeah, uh, I personally learn well through reading or fiction or nonfiction, just reading something in general makes it stick with me really well. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that, trying to learn more through reading uh, during this stay at home time. Um, we have all the time. <laughs> a lot of time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, my best friend's husband is uh, Lakota, and he's from South Dakota. And when I read that, I kind of read that book, too, because the They're There by Tommy Orange there. Um, I kind of read that book partly because I know him. And it, I mean, like I said before, it was, it was really well-reviewed, and it sounded really interesting anyway, but it made it, like, a little bit more personal from knowing him and knowing, like, his his backstory and how he grew up and life on a reservation and stuff like that. And just like, I don't know, it helped build like a more complete picture. And I feel like in general, when I read books like that, like I'm trying to build a bigger picture about things I don't know about. And I'm just like learning, trying to learn because learning is important as we talked about earlier. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's great. Cause there are still a lot of people who think that all the native Americans are dead. No, and like not. none of us exist. Oh, that's not the case yeah. at all. Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions about like modern indigeneity and what mm -hmm. it means. That you know, that, that there's just so much that people don't know about the nuances of of modern indigenous life. Um, and you know, I don't fault people because they don't teach that in school, and unless you were raised in that culture, like you said, have friends or connections or relations um, who are native and kind of expose you to that. Most people don't, that's just not what they experience. Um, they wouldn't think to, to educate themselves um, if there wasn't some sort of interest there. Yeah, knowing him sort of made it more personal, but I just, I think I would have read the book regardless, but uh, I would like to think that I would be willing to learn about other cultures as well, because I think that's really valuable. Uh, 
knowing other people and where, where they come from and what they value um, builds a bigger picture of the world and I think makes us like better humans also. Yeah. One more book review. Have you read um, Braiding Sweetgrass or heard of it? I started the audiobook, didn't like the narrator. I've been waiting for it <laughs> in the library so I could just read it. <laughs> ruin it for you though, yeah. Yeah, it was the narrator. Uh, I need to just read it. I just hadn't gotten it back, but you should tell me about it anyway, even though it's on my to-read list. Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, kind of everything that we were talking about, about, you know, indigenous wisdom and uh, tradition and carrying that into modern science today and uh, restoration. The author, I forget her name, Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, mm -hmm. talks about all these lessons that we can learn from plants. And they're kind of presented in a mix of like, personal storytelling um, and snippets of, you know, scientific facts. And it, it's a good blended discussion of all the things that we've talked about today and presented in a way where it's like, hey, these conversations don't have to be disconnected. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be science in one corner and then indigeneity in the other and, uh, you know, environmental justice over here. Um, you know, it's one conversation that's just had with, you know, different accents almost. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna make a renewed effort to get this book. Yeah. <laughs> It's been, I, you know, I forgot about it, but like, I need to read this book. So I will make sure I, I read this book. I'm going to put it in bold in my notes so that I remember. Uh, <laughs> squared it. Um, do you have anything else here you, you want to share, Kellen? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for you know, inviting me to this conversation and for all the work that you do and outreach um, through your podcast and through your work and 500 women scientists you talk about like there's not enough for me to do but you do a lot you do a lot of good work so I, I mean I do a lot of trying I think <laughs> well we need the triers too because you know as you try things eventually get done and that's yeah it's worth noting so thank you for everything you do you know here in our field and in the community as well oh well thank you and thank you for going along with all of it <laughs> for you know going out on the limb and coming to the 500 women scientists that very first event uh you know at the bar wherever that was like in october or something that's how we met Bo um, could go to bars right but remember we could do that <laughs> um, we can order a beer on time yeah yeah. Oh. Those are um, the <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Uh, it's a weird world. But the more important part is thank you for coming <laughs> to that so that we have met and um, all the things that you do and all of your ideas are brilliant and it's really inspiring to me. And so it's, that's why I wanted to talk to you on here because I think everything you're doing is amazing and you have a perspective um, to offer. I mean, everybody does, but I think that your perspective is really interesting and I wanted to, to share it with the world if you would be willing and you were. So thank you for going along with it. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you for, for doing this. Yeah, thanks. This has also been fun too. So I'm not, uh, you know, relegated to only the company of my cats today. 
So thank right. you for being a friendly human face. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I, at first I felt like it was kind of like a dick of me to keep asking people to do this in this like weird time, right? But for me, it's like offsetting the social distancing negatives because I'm an introvert anyway, but like a conversation every however many days or once a week or something, it's like low pressure, very social, you know, so it's helped me and I hope that it's helping others. So um, I'm glad that it helped you today. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed hearing uh, today's storyteller. And if you want to find out more, I share a bunch of information and resources from every storyteller over on the podcast Facebook page. So go find us and like us. It's called Storytellers of STEM on Facebook. You can also find the same information and stuff on my Twitter at Flying Cypress, F-L-Y-I-N-G-C-Y-P-R-E-S-S on Twitter. I'll share all kinds of information and resources from each storyteller over there. Um, And if you would like to be on the podcast, I'm always looking for STEM storytellers. So if you have a story you'd like to share, uh, message me on Facebook or Twitter or check out my website, rachelvillani.com slash podcast. And there's a submission form and it will send info to me and then I will get in touch. So if you want to be on the podcast, hit me up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.